Welcome to Drinks at the Doll, episode 33, La Fée Epoque. listening to Drinks at the Doll, a podcast way station for Lost Girl fans. I am your host, Stephanie. And I'm Annie. And I'm Chris. And this week we are talking about episode seven of season four of Lost Girl, La Fée Epoque. And let's start with our drink special for this week, which maybe uncreatively is called French Connection. It is made (laughs) with amaretto and cognac. And I didn't have cognac. The closest thing I had was cherry-flavored brandy. So it's not really like the drink at all, but it's delicious and very boozy. So, (laughs) Well, cheers, Stephanie. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. So let's first start with sort of our quick reviews, what were sort of our initial impressions, our thoughts about the episode. So I really, really liked this episode. Like, really? I I, Really? Really. I really enjoyed it. And I know, and I kind of am a little afraid saying that because I know that a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are Lauren fans and Docubus fans in particular. And I know that a lot of Docubus fans were not particularly happy with elements of this episode. But have no fear, we're going to discuss sort of the feedback that we've been reading on Twitter, and I'm sure Annie is going to voice maybe some of your concerns later in the podcast, but I really, really liked it. I know everybody's probably sick of hearing me say this, but I mean it every time. I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. I can't help it. I'm enthusiastic about the show, and and I have sort of no preconceptions of what the episode should be, so I just sort of, I'm along for the ride, and I'm like, I'm enjoying the hell out of this season, quite frankly. And, And I thought, they did this uh, this sort of episode I think we've seen in a lot of series before. I kept thinking that it kind of reminded me of various episodes of Angel. If you, if you watch Angel, the series, you know, they've got all the flashback episodes to Angel's past. And it kind of reminded me of that. And then, of course, you've got all the things where, you know, somebody or the, the cast sort of takes the places of people. And anyway, it's, it's sort of a, a mix of different frequently used genre elements and and i i really i liked it they they did it well i thought honestly i'm i i just i'm so torn about this episode i just i I think i'm referring to what anna silk said about uh some of the things about lost girl this season the highs are really high and the lows are really low and i feel like i just went had so many highs of this episode that I loved. Uh, what I loved about this episode, I really, really loved, like the showcasing of Zoe Palmer's talents with singing in French and Bo playing Dyson's role, kind of that more masculine lady killer role, how Anna Silk took on the mannerisms of Dyson, yet it's mixed with Bo's own subconscious. Uh, just how intriguing that was to see. Lauren and Kenzie sticking up as team human and taking serious risks to save the, you know, someone in the beloved gang and just how everybody was dressed in the past. I love the costuming in this episode to the point I didn't even recognize some of them at first. And, uh, you know, the docubus sleeping beauty kiss and the lows were really low. I just, there were some points where just Lauren is so self-sacrificial and, um, was ignored at the end or no one acknowledges what she did. That was the part that I didn't like so much, but just honestly, if I were to give it a percentage, it's like, there's things that I love more than things that I like, but the things that I didn't like, I really didn't like. So there's 
you know, like I said, pros and cons, but there's a lot of parts of this app that I will watch over and over and over and over and watch the GIFs over and over again. So no big surprise. I was going to say, I don't think we really need clarification on which ones those are, Annie. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> so let's let's talk about the A-line, which is, of course, Dyson's past. And this kind of works on two levels. You have sort of the story of what happened to Dyson back in the day. And then we also have it working as sort of a parallel to what's going on for sort of Bo and Lauren and their relationship. So let's start first about just kind of the information we gleaned about Dyson's past, that element of it. I, I very rarely read any type of spoiler, like episode synopsis, promos. I don't, I try not to read those. You actively avoid it. I actively avoid it, but I did actually read the synopsis for this episode. And when I saw it, I was thinking, oh gosh, is this going to be another like a retread of Fatal Justice, which is an episode from season one where Dyson is accused of murder, but he doesn't remember and he doesn't do it. And Bo is trying to exonerate him. And that's essentially the basic plot of this episode. But it is just so different from Fatal Justice. And frankly, it's better than Fatal Justice. I thought this was a really cleverly written episode. Agreed. And then sort of another episode that it kind of harkened back to for me was Brother Faye of the Wolves, which was the other episode we got with sort of flashbacks from Dyson's past, which I also not a big fan of that episode, because I feel like the flashback we see about Dyson doesn't really tell us anything new about him. He's essentially he's essentially the same guy, but dressed like Braveheart, you know? And so I liked that in this episode, it actually revealed something new about Dyson's past. And we have talked in the past about how some of the characters on Lost Girl compare to the characters on Buffy, and we've talked about how Dyson compares to Angel. And I was watching this episode with my partner, and when we get to Dyson's, you know, the reveal of Dyson's past, we went like we both said at the same time, "Oh, hello, Liam," because <laughs> if you're not familiar with Buffy, before he was Angel the Vampire, Angel was Liam, a, a young Irish lad with a tendency for too much drink and too much too much women. So. <laughs> we both kind of had a similar reaction. As as I did, apparently. <laughs> and so then another episode, this is just going to be me talking, isn't it? <laughs> another episode, this episode reminded me of, was it actually reminded me a lot of the ceremony and the dawning? Because, you know, the dawning was kind of supposed to be an insight into Bo's psyche, but really we got an insight into Dyson's psyche and there was all of this symbolism and this and that. And we weren't really sure what was going on. And in this one, you know, supposedly supposed to be about Dyson. But really, I think we learn more about, more about Bo and Lauren in this episode than we do about Dyson. Yeah, I agree with that. There were so many parallels where with learning more about Bo's psyche instead of just Dyson's. And there were so many mo- moments in the episode where I'm like, this could be Dyson talking, but it's also Bo. And, you know, Lauren says at the beginning that, you know, your subconscious is going to pop in there. And so you could, you know, really say that. And it's just, there's so many parallels with Flora and Lauren, yet Flora is a fae. So, you know, I I mean, you don't know where my mind just kept wandering to this episode. I was like, so Zoe Palmer is playing a fae that looks like Lauren. So does Lauren, is she really have some fae? genealogy she doesn't know about it yet or whatever i just my mind just went all over the place with this episode the thing was though at the beginning i think it was cassie right explained that 
Bo was going to see things or see familiar faces and places because, I mean, they, they went out of their way to clarify that it is sort of Bo's brain and Dyson's brain, sort of. Or Dyson's memories. Right. That's what I mean. Pardon me. They made a clear distinction that it is, it's basically an excuse to use the cast as past characters and also existing locations. So, you know, the, the French club where he meets Flora, I mean, it's the doll. (laughs) Oh, Flora's bedroom was, was Beau's bedroom too. So. I thought actually that was a really smart way to set up the episode because it allowed them to really save money because <laughs> mm-hmm. they could they could use their own cast to, to be people in Dyson's past and they could just sort of, you know, do some basic redecoration of their existing sets and it not be a big deal because we had this disclaimer of, oh, you will, you know, put places and people you recognize into Dyson's memory. How much money you can save with one script line. Yeah. Which is what happens, you know, like in in dreams, you ever have dreams where like a location is supposed to be a location, but it doesn't really look like that location, but you know, it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be that location. Right. Anyway, but then it also gives it, you know, the layers and layers of meaning. So, so story bonus. I did like how they redressed the sets to make them look familiar yet different at the same time. I thought that was really well done. So something I thought was interesting about what we, we saw revealed about how Dyson and Trick met is that it perhaps sort of cemented for me a little bit more perhaps why Dyson feels a big kinship to Bo. Because we see in this episode that, you know, he was lost from his pack and he had to find his way back to a more noble path. And it's kind of similar to where Bo starts out at the beginning of the series, where she's been separated from her people. She's found her way back in, but is trying to carve out a better way for herself. So that may be kind of put some lights off in my head as to, oh, okay, maybe this is why Dyson kind of felt um, an immediate kind of kinship with Bo to the point where he helped her kind of unexpectedly to me in the first episode of the series. Agreed. And I love the point of showing how Trick and Dyson met for the first time. I love the the Jedi Bo staff moves that Trick had. Uh, Rick Allen did a great job there. He He credited the the stunt team on uh, his Twitter account. I love how he could see the true Dyson beyond all the philandering and all the women and, you know, stealing and things like that uh, to just say, you are a hero. You're a noble warrior. I want you to be my second. Obviously he'd been, seems like he'd been watching Dyson and thinking about it for some time. And to see that whole speech at the end that Trick had to where Dyson pledges fealty to him, um, that to me was uh, really heartwarming to see. And you could see that, you know, it's, it is about Dyson being lost, as you say, and finding someone to be with this brotherhood again, to be included in the world of the Fae again. And it's very interesting that Trick says we'll make a, you know, a world of Fae of their own. I don't know if he's necessarily refer- referring to specifically starting what is known as the Light Fae at that point. Um, because it's after the Blood Wars. And that was also a really cool bit where Trek revealed he was the Blood King. Glow in the dark veins! Oh my god. But um, I thought that was a... To me, that's the Dyson that I love, who goes beyond all of this surface stuff, and you see his um, real... Just... Uh, it's kind of weird to use the word humanity when it's a fae, but just his real character underneath that Trick can always see. 
So I'm wondering, since there was this very obvious parallel between Bo and Dyson in this episode, if perhaps, you know, because Dyson sort of found his way back to being who he should be through, through you know, meeting Trick, etc. We see that story. And I'm wondering if maybe the suggestion of the hell shoes that are meant for sort of this one true hero, if that will maybe help guide Bo back on sort of her right path. Or, you know, are the hell shoes perhaps meant for somebody else? I'm a little confused about the hell shoe situation. And just amused by the fact that they're called hell shoes. <laughs> that we're having a serious discussion about, about hell shoes right now. Could they just production designers just I think they may maybe they meant it as an in joke that they just took like a few pieces of burlap and sewed them together. These are the hell shoes. I'm all Well seriously They're called hell shoes. I don't really think they're supposed to be all that pretty. <laughs> I I know, but they were so goddamn ugly. I was just appalled. Anyway. I liked that they but, looked uh, like Tom's <laughs> It's like I bet I bet thousands of people are now afraid to put on their Tom shoes for fear that they will not come off. <laughs> not that something you want to try on in the wrong size, apparently. I'm going to get a little Freudian here, folks. I'm sorry. Oh I'm sorry, but Uh-oh. they were talking about the subconscious. I have to do it. So Freud, you know, he has the theory about the parts of the personality, the id, the ego, and the superego. So we have the id, which is sort of our base instincts and drives and desires. It really wants immediate gratification. And then you have the ego, which is sort of the the problem solver, the reality tester. It tells the id that gratification has to be delayed and sort of makes a plan to satisfy that need. And then you have the superego, which is your morality. It's sort of like, it's the should nots and the should. So we should do this. We should not do that, et cetera, et cetera. And in a, an ideal personality, these three things are balanced and they all work together. But if you have like an imbalance and you are lean too far to the id, you might have impulse control problems. If you lean too far to the superego, you might have, you might be too critical of yourself and be, you know, really mean to yourself. So. I thought there was sort of an interesting reading that you could take using these ideas with this episode, because we have Dyson, who's acting as the ego, but he's sort of teetering toward the id at the beginning of the episode with his his womanizing and his drinking and, and all of this stuff. Well, maybe not drinking, but his womanizing and his thieving. And then we have Trick, who comes along as sort of a representative of the superego, trying to give Dyson a moral purpose again. And at first, Dyson blows him off, says no. And he goes to to Flora and they get involved in this plot and Flora puts on the hell shoes. And Flora really becomes this representation of the id and really it's most horrifying, right? She says, when she, after she's sort of come back to herself, all the darkest parts of myself, all of them here now. And that's often how the id is portrayed, like our, our darkest parts. And so after seeing sort of the horrifying side that could happen from leaning too far to the id, we have Dyson go back to trick the superego to sort of achieve a better balance again. So I thought that was kind of an interesting reading you might take from the episode if you are interested by such things, but maybe you're not. (laughs) Maybe you're wishing, well, we shut up and get to the sex already. And that's fine, too. (laughs) (laughs) Freud is all about the sex as well. (laughs) That's true. I thought you were going to say Freudian slip and, you know, who knows what. But I did like that very classic hero's journey that Dyson made. Uh, that you see made in his past and that he's probably still making in his present uh, when he's talking to Kenzie and learning from his past mistakes and saying that he will give what the Unamens want, which is a question. Why do the Unamens want the hell shoes? Um, that he will give it to them 
to save Kenzie, and because he doesn't want another being he loves sacrificed again. Theory about why the Unamens want the Hell Shoes is because yes, please. Bo brought up Rainer the other week, and I think they might know that Rainer is the Wanderer. The they might have interest in these shoes because that might be a way to lure him or make sure that he doesn't become too powerful or something like that. So I think that's why is because Bo brought up Rainer to them or well, Bo didn't the, the guy with the head, you know, <laughs> brought, brought the, her, her contract to join the dark to them. And cause they seem very upset about that. Right. But I mean, they wanted the shoes back when Dyson got them in the first place. That's true. I don't really have so, a good explanation as to why they were interested back then, but I think that's maybe why their interest was regenerated because I liked the ending, the reveal that the Unamens had had sort of set up Dyson because it suggested to me that they knew Dyson hadn't committed these crimes and that they brought him in with the hope that he would give them the shoes. You know, any there's so many different bits of fey lore and mythology and physical items that have this mystical power, if fallen into the wrong hands, will create havoc and chaos in the end of days. And I'm sure the Unamens want as many of those items they can, whether it's to learn, lure out Reiner, or keep wanting to say Reynard, or to maintain the balance between the Dark and the Light Fae, uh, or to, you know, who knows, they could possibly want to destroy them all and start over, because they're not, you know, the Fae aren't um, being very well aligned these days, uh, or keeping things in order. Let's move on to sort of talking about how exploring Dyson's past sort of function to explore Bo and by extension, sort of Bo and Lauren's relationships. I really liked the way that they set the episode up to do this. I love that it you you look at the description, you think, oh, it's going to be Chris Holden Reed running around for an hour. But instead, they use this device to showcase two female actors instead of a male actor. And I thought Anna Silk did a really good job being being Dyson-y, you know, both in sort of her physicality as well as her, her line delivery. And then I think in the first scene with Trick, where Dyson is talking to him, Anna really had Dyson's mannerisms down. I think just the way she walked, the way she, you know, the, the way and she talked, sort of like I love look that. look over the shoulder thing that yeah, sometimes yeah. Dyson does. I was actually, this is going to sound pervy probably, but I was actually most aware of how Anna Silk was really changing her physicality when, when I'm going to call her Bosun and I'm going to call Lauren is Flora Florin, just because <laughs> I get confused otherwise. So we have Bosun and we have Florin. This is my, this is my names. All right. All right. All I right. like it. So the first time when Bosun and Florin kiss, I noticed that she kept her hands on Florin's back because Bo always puts her hands up to the face of the people that she kisses. That's why it seemed so different. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, hey, she's right. Dyson, you know, Dyson doesn't do that. It, it, that's something that Bo does. But yeah, you're right. I noticed the hands on the shoulder blades. I was like, hmm. oh. It was a different kind of physicality, though, in bed. So, so Anne did a great job, I thought, as Dyson, and I thought her shirt was off an appropriate amount of time, given that she was playing Dyson. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, shirt's off in the beginning, couple scenes, oh good, that's shirt's right, off, coming right. again, shirt's still off. <laughs> <laughs> but, and it was also, of course, great to see Zoe Palmer play a different type of character because it was a completely it was, different type of it character was. and zoe palmer i've actually been talking to a friend about this recently she the the style of acting that she uses actually tends to be quite different than the other actors they tend to do a little bit 
broader acting, some of them even are really campy. Like Paul Amos is very campy most of the time. Paul Paul Amos. Paul Amos. I'm trying to say his name correctly. I apologize, Paul. Zoe is a bit more subdued, which works for Lauren as a character because she's a very reserved mm-hmm. person. But it was great to see Zoe Palmer show her chops. See, you know, she can do broader characters as well. I giggled through basically all of her scenes. I know. She was hysterical. Uh, yeah, I love the broader comedy and just the being able to sing like that and giving Zoe the chance to do that. But again, this is a random tangent, but I have to say the costuming was incredible in that scene. I, I literally did not recognize Paul Amos and Ksenia Solo until they were in the scene, like further in the scene, because that's, I was like, what? So that was just really, really great to see them play different kinds of characters. And Paul Amos with his really bad French accent and Spanish. For once, oh Spanish, excuse me, and um, and it seemed like that uh, the Kenzie character was the proprietor of the bar, uh, and was also Faye, if I'm not mistaken. So it's it just boggles your mind when it how it relates to the humans in the modern world. Uh, I don't know, so that just gives me all kinds of possibilities. As far as sort of other little bits of the storyline related to to Bo and Lauren, I thought it was interesting that when Boson and Florin were in the dressing room and they were sort of dancing and talking about if they stole the shoes, their life would change. And and Boson says, let me go with you so that I can protect you. And Florin replies, I don't need your protection. I thought that was a nice echo back to what Lauren says to Bo at the end of episode 405, Let the Dark Times Roll, where... Bo is basically saying, you know, I'll claim you, et cetera, et cetera. And Lauren says, I don't, I don't want that. So I thought it was an interesting sort of repeat on that theme. Yeah, this is where I thought the um, parallels between Flora and Lauren came in and Bo and Bo in the past and with her subconscious and Bo in the present, where um, it's very much Bo wanting to always protect Lauren. And this is what I call Lauren kind of like 2.0 in season four saying, no, I don't need your protection. How about you come with me instead? Come to, you know, come and this is all I want is to reclaim my land or my freedom, which is kind of like what Lauren always wants. Right. I like that she says, I don't need your connection, but you can come with me, like as my friend, as my equal. And I think that's really what Lauren wants in her relationship with Bo is for them to be equals. But I don't think Lauren of a few seasons ago would have said that. She would have said, I want freedom, but not, oh, let's go away and do this instead. So, like, I want my freedom, I have dreams, let's go get them together. So it really is this whole evolution of her um, of her way of thinking and just of, just of the path that she's taking. Her going to such lengths to save Bo in this episode, and as an extension, Dyson, as frustrating as it was for me to see it as a Docubus fan, you know, she's she's so self-sacrificial. She goes, well, you're doing it for Dyson. And at the end, like when Bo is torn up and she's getting all confused and she says, I don't have you anymore. And Lauren says, you still have Dyson. You know, she's saying that just, I think, just to get Bo out of, you know, Dyson's memory so that she can come back so that she doesn't become insane. Um, even if it's always, unfortunately, I think at her own expense, you know, and at the expense of her wanting Bo or wanting to be with Bo as an equal. So, so that exchange where, where Bo says you're gone, there's nothing to come back to. 
I, I thought was was really sad. I mean, I, I first viewing, I took it as Bo being confused and thinking that Lauren was Flora and was dead. Uh, though obviously the line is supposed to work on both levels where it's she's talking about Flora. She's talking about feeling like Lauren is gone in her daily life. But I thought it was really interesting. Like you mentioned, Lauren doesn't take the tack of convincing Bo she's still alive, we can be together. She just sort of says, but you can still save Dyson. And I think that actually is Lauren really sticking up for herself more than sacrificing personally. Because, you know, we see when she wakes up that she still loves Bo. You know, they, they have a very sweet kiss when, when, when they wake up. I think that is evidence, perhaps, of this trend we're seeing for Lauren this season, where she's really trying to take care of herself. She's trying to sort of figure out how to deal with this fae, pardon my language, with this fae bullshit. And I, I think she is perhaps letting go, letting Bo go a bit to kind of focus on herself and her own goals, even though she clearly still cares for Bo, still loves Bo. But does Bo care for her? Because it doesn't always seem like it. She's too in her own yes, head. Yes, Annie, Wanda. she does. I, I know, but it's like one minute she does, and then one minute she doesn't, and I'm like, ah! My take on this, to, to some extent, I mean, I, I agree with your interpretations. I mean, they're they're fair. But what I'm kind of seeing is, I mean, Lauren's pretty much a pragmatist, right? We can, we can say that. Lauren's pragmatic, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. How long is it going to take to convince Bo that... She's really Lauren, and she's really Bo, and they need to do this because this is all stuff that happened in the past. Versus how long is it, you know, going to take to say, okay, maybe I'm gone, but you still have something that you need to do. Yeah, I, I totally see that point. You know, she had to get to the she had to get to the quick and dirty and just say, we need to get out of here, otherwise you're going to be like permanently insane. So another exchange that I thought was very telling was um, the that I'm surprised I have actually haven't seen more people talking about is where, you know, Boson says to Florin, I love you. And Florin says, no, you don't. I, you know, and, and my true love is the forest and I think your love is to come. And obviously she's supposed to be speaking about Dyson eventually meeting Bo. But it is also Bo and Lauren saying that to each other on some level. And so I'm guessing, like, you know, what do we think this means in regards to Bo and Lauren? I personally kind of think it's referencing the fact that Bo isn't really ready to have a relationship with Lauren, even though she may love her. She's not, she and Lauren aren't quite on the same page yet. You and I had this discussion many times this summer that I personally felt like situation especially was just not working in their favor for them to like begin a relationship because you know Bo's dawning starts and and there's all this other stuff going on and and now there's more other stuff going on (laughs) so yeah I mean the time is not right for them is sort of what I'm seeing and I know people are going to be upset with me for saying that and okay that's fine you know, it's such a double-edged sword, and it is such a confusing exchange, because it is, at first I thought it was, you know, Flora talking about Bo meeting Dyson, but then, you know, is it Bo, and will, you know, her love be, you know, was for somebody else? Will it be with Lauren down the line? Will they be ready for each other down the line? It's just, everything's in flux right now with Bo. Um, while she sorts out the Wanderer, which is her foremost priority. You know, I'm, I'm just waiting for the talk to happen with Lauren, and I just don't think, 
as Stephanie or as Chris said, that they're ready for that yet. That they've Bo's reached that level of you know awareness yet, somewhat maturity or whatnot. Um, they are on two different planes. It's heartbreaking for me to see. So let's talk a little bit about the sex scene because there's lots of feelings about the sex scene. <laughs> I'm aware of that. So I'll, I'll let I'll let you go first, Andy. Do you have anything in particular you want to say about about the sex scene, either that you liked or didn't like about it? Hey, I liked it when it was Anna and Zoe, and I'm like, hey, you go, guys. And it was going great until that reflection in the mirror, which of course my mind knows, but you don't have to show it twice. And then I just went, oh god, oh god, ew, ew, ew. So, um, yeah. Well, I I have seen some people on Twitter. Some some members of the the queer audience, the LGBT audience, who were upset about the reflection of Dyson and Lor- and Lauren. I did air quotes. Florin having sex in the mirror, and I can understand why some viewers were upset with that because there is the tendency in both television and film to have characters who identify as lesbian. Lauren wouldn't use that word. They don't use those words on this show, but. From what we can tell, she is interested in women. She wants to have relationships with women. So it's it's a tendency to have lesbian characters sleep with men. And this is really troubling for a lot of queer women in particular, because it sort of reinforces this idea that all female characters have to be sexually desirable and, and sort of sexually accessible to straight men. So I can understand being sort of upset with the reflection on that level. However, I personally was not bothered with it because it really wasn't Lauren. It was it was Zoe Palmer. It wasn't Lauren. So I don't feel personally like the show reinforced that bad stereotype. And I feel like even if I did kind of view it that way, I would think it was a kind of small misstep, which otherwise is a very, very queer episode. Because the writers did take this choice to, instead of have Chris Holden Reed in all of his flashbacks, you know, cast a guest star to play Flora, or even have, heck, have Zoe Palmer, but, you know, cast a guest star to play Flora. Instead, they put two women there, and it was used to sort of parallel the prominent storyline of the main character and her female lover. This is a very, very queer show. This is kind of a, a, a common thing to happen sort of back in the 90s to early 2000s in sci-fi was if you had like a, a female-female kind of like crack ship pairing is, is maybe a way to put it, or even a subtext pairing that they couldn't really bring into main text. It was a very sort of common storyline to have one of the female characters inhibit um, inhibit a male body so that they could have those two female characters kiss, but it'd be okay because really it was a man and a female a male and a female character kissing. I think I know they did this on Xena at least once, if not two or three times. Yes, you are referring to the end of season four, Deja Vu all over again, where Xena is in Joxer's body and kisses Gabrielle at the end. If I'm not trying to say if you were upset by the mirror scene for that reason, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't be. By all means, everybody has their own opinions and their own reaction to things. But I do have sort of a reading of the episode that maybe will make you feel a little bit better. I don't know. Maybe not. Hear me out. So, you know, oftentimes a, a character who is 
starts out as sort of the beginning of the sh- of the film or the TV show as straight, has a, a same-sex relationship with somebody, and then that character is punished by dying, right? She or he or she is punished for their, their homosexual experience by being killed. But what we have in this episode is we have a character who we usually read as queer. She has sex with a man, and then she gets possessed and into an evil thing, and then she dies. So she was punished for her heteronormativity. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, but it's still showing it as sex with a woman on screen, so you could argue, uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. But but then it cuts to the scene, or the shot that you can't stand. So, but that's the thing that people are bothered by, is that it cuts to showing the man. That's true. So, so I right. don't know, maybe maybe that doesn't make anybody feel better, but it is kind of interesting to note. It, it's, it's still jarring after seeing the representation of Bo and Lauren together, you know. To cut to the man, you know, again, my mind was just like, oh, this is great. This is great. Oh, God. But see, I thought the sex scene was really not sexy at all. I was I thought the whole thing was kind of hilarious. Uh, yeah. quite frankly, I thought it was I thought it was hilarious and sexy. But well, I think it's also important to note that, you know, Dyson's memories were exploring Bo's subconscious as much as Dyson's memories, right? And Bo has admitted, she says in Arachnophobia, that she has imagined a threesome with Dyson and Lauren. So I think that's partially what's going on there is like we're seeing sort of elements of Bo's desires come through. So, you know, it makes kind of sense that it'd be a, a bit of a thrill for her to see two people she finds sexy being sexy together. And she does say, what does she say to the mirror? She says, okay, oh. this is happening for investigated purposes. Purposes. And she seems to enjoy it a bit as much as my mind is screaming. No, no, no. But, um, but yeah. And it almost is kind of humorous at that point that I can see, you know, Bo's desires coming through. There was obviously a lot of reflections and mirrors in this episode. And, and part of it obviously was a device to remind viewers and to make clear to viewers that yes, we're seeing Bo, but this is supposed to be Dyson. But I also think that there's a big suggestion that Bo equals Dyson through this reflection that she's seeing. And uh, particularly that scene in the mirror that we get, I feel like is maybe suggesting that Bo is acting like this past Dyson kind of in the moment, especially in regards to her relationship, sort of this really blase, not very involved type of relationship that maybe she's confusing for for love in some way. That was kind of my thought about the the mirror shot as well as why they one of the reasons they decided to include it. And following a sort of detachment from your your group, so to speak, cuz I mean the Dyson had been part of his pack and had left his pack and you know been adrift basically and so also sort of reflective of of Bo's situation where she'd gone off with the wanderer and came back different. But I think the thing that was really reinforced here was the threesome that they're kind of will always be together because there's Angel, Angel Kenzie or Angel says uh, to Bo when she first comes into the redress doll or whatever, the bar, she says, you've entered a place where dreams come true outside of time and space. Lauren and Kenzie are both Faye in this past. And it just, to me, cemented that the feeling I had was that this triangle, it's, they're always going to be together throughout lifetimes. Because the one thing that was said about the, st- the red string of fate, uh, Lauren says, those who are destined to meet, regardless of time, place, or circumstance. And who has it on? It's Lauren, it's Bo, 
and his Dyson. Right. And, and, and Lauren says at the end of the, of this, of the episode, it's really only meant for two people. And Bo says, Oh, I don't care. So I was actually going to bring yeah. that up. It's like maybe the writers are sort of testing out a, there could be like a team both ending potentially, you know, I'm not trying to say that that's what they're going for, but Bo is maybe open to that, that maybe she's not meant to be with just one person. So we'll go ahead and we'll talk a little bit about the ending because I know that Annie has a lot to say about the end in the bar. So why don't you go ahead, Annie, and tell us tell us what exactly upset you about the ending of the episode. I think the thing that really stood out for me in this episode was how much Kenzie and Lauren risked themselves to save Dyson, which kind of really gave into the whole thing that where Lauren said Dyson is family. And Bo says, I would do the same for you. She says it to Lauren. And I think... Those were, you know, initially really sweet gestures. And the fact that I freaked out twice during this episode when <laughs> it's revealed that Kenzie is washing down Dyson. And I'm like, holy shit, Kenzie, get out of there. The Gunamens are going to kill you. But then she ties a string around him. And then she gets thrown in jail with the matching pajamas and almost gets killed. And then Dyson says to her, we can start teaching you as a shadow thief, which I really wonder what that's about. As you're supposed to. Yeah, so... But they're both kind of just sitting there hoping that Bo comes through. Um, and I don't know. I mean, Dyson tells her the story, but he's not like, hey, by the way, thanks for coming in here. And that's kind of also what bothered me about the end. It freaked me out when Lauren just, she almost unties the string from Bo and then decides to go in herself. And I'm like, she's going to die in there. Well, not die, but it's like it's a huge risk because humans aren't supposed to be in that memory plane of existence. And then... The fact that Bo kisses her to get her out of there and that she uh, is fi- Lauren's fine after that. That was just, you know, wonderful to see that they still care about each other deeply. And, and then, you know, Bo goes, the first thing in her mind is, I know how to save Dyson. But she could have said, I still like you too or something. But that was just me wanting that. So then how it comes down to the ending in the bar is that there's Kenzie and Hale and they're, you know, still flirting with each other. And it's very sweet. And then uh, Bo and Dyson, and they're relieved to see each other and are talking. And, you know, and then there's Lauren looking very awkward in the middle, kind of like a fifth wheel. And she's very quiet while everybody else is talking, except for the adorable, um, I can do neuro- neurosurgery, but walking and eating at the same time. You know, I did love how they mentioned the whole gang was back together. But it would have been nice if anyone had acknowledged that if Lauren had not gone in there, if Kenzie had not gone in there, that Dyson would be dead, that Kenzie almost got killed, that Lauren could have died. You know, it just, and then Bo and Dyson are being all googly-eyed, or googly-eyed, they're being all gooey-eyed toward each other again. And it's just like, eh, a little bit more cohesion in the writing, I don't know. It's just, it's like... But if Bo can't decide who she wants to be with, that's fine. But it's like an acknowledgement of what the doctor did would have been nice. And I'm putting it mildly from all the stuff I've read and retweeted on Twitter. So that was my issue. The idea of, hey, the team's all back together, I think is kind of, and Bo saying, I would do it for you, I, I think is kind of a we help each other out. It's what we do type of sentiment. Bo does, I mean, Dyson doesn't really thank anybody not even Bo. And, you know, and I can understand being upset by that. You want more. I can get that. I don't ask for much. I just want one line, you know? I think that's what people want. 
It doesn't have to be a whole diatribe. Well, well Bo thanked, thanked Lauren for helping at the beginning. She did help thank her. Yeah, but after all this, it's like, it's Bo says one thing, and then it's like, oh, what about Dyson? Then this thing, then, oh, and it's like this up and down, and it's like, regardless of what ship you're on, and you're just like, what the hell is going on? I don't know. I guess I'm of the camp that I don't need my characters to say everything, and I'm okay with that. I just need them to say a little bit more. Well, I think ideally with television, you want to show rather than tell. So that's really what the coming back with hot dogs said to me, was that this was a really friendly gesture. This was, hey, we're celebrating, you know, we got the job accomplished, Dyson's okay. And honestly, seeing Lauren included in a scene like that, which we never have before, it's usually Kenzie and Bo at the end of the episode, or maybe Kenzie, Bo, and Dyson. She, he bought them, brought them pizza once at the end in uh, season one. So to see Lauren included in a scene like that, that's huge. That actually, even though she did seem, I agree, rather isolated in that scene, just having her be there was a pretty big deal, I think. Stephanie and I had a discussion earlier, aside from talking about leaves and hot pantsless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, Steekin, where's Crystal? Episode three, no, where, no Crystal, where's Crystal? Leaves. We're sort of wondering if Bo's talking to Dyson and kind of ignoring Lauren a little bit is maybe part of the thing that Bo does when she's hurt, where she sort of a little deliberately... What's the word I'm looking for here? She's flirty and pays a lot of attention to she's she's coupley with 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 somebody else in front of the person who hurt her. We saw her do this back in season one when she like was vaguely annoyed. spiteful. I think is what I'm looking yeah, for. Yeah, <laughs> when after Lauren had sort of betrayed her trust in in vexed. So it's not it's not out of character for Bo to do this. I'm not defending Bo, but I think that was kind of what was going on. Bo was that way towards Dyson too at the beginning of season two. Yes. When, when she found out that he'd lost his love and she was sort of trying to get him back and he's like, I can't. And, and she was sort of a little vaguely hostile to him then. And, and of course, since as, as we discussed last week is, is less compassionate than she has been before. So maybe it's like a little bit worse now because she's still driving me nuts. I admit, okay. It's driving me nuts now more. I think I was going to clarify that that I do still love Bo very much, but yes, Bo is acting out. But I'm 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 hesitant to judge her too harshly because we don't know what had happened to her, and she doesn't know what had happened to her. And frankly, that would freak me out, which would make me act weird. So you know, to me, it's one of those things. I, I think I, again, part of it is just I think Anna Selk that she's got this sort of like innate goodness to her. Like, you want to like her, you want to root for her, even when she's acting out and stuff, and because you know it's not, it's not really her. <laughs> and maybe I'm just being overly fangirly at this point, but, you know, you just, you want her to snap out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. This was my thought, too. It's like, it wouldn't upset me if I didn't care so much about the characters. Exactly. <laughs> and then you're like, ah, but that's good writing. So Dyson in this episode, you know, he took kind of a back seat, even though the episode was technically about him. Mostly, I, I was saying last week, I was feeling sorry for Dyson because of the way that Bo treated him. And then this week, I'm annoyed with him again. I wish Dyson would just get more consistent so I could like him more or something. But he had like a couple of blockhead, I'm going to call them blockhead comments, which which annoyed me. <laughs> the big one being, of course, oh, it's kind of nice to just wait to be saved for once. <laughs> 
dude, how many times have you been saved throughout the series by the inferior humans? Just in and this Bo? episode, Trick saved him twice. Bo, Lauren, Kenzie, and Hale work to save him in the present. And then, you know, in season one, we have Bo saving him in Fatal Justice and mem- Dismembers Only. I made a list. In season two, Kenzie saved him in both Lachlan's Gambit and Into the Dark. In season three, Bo saved him in Fade to Black and The Ceremony. And then Lauren saved him in Those Who Wander. Dyson, you get rescued all the time. All the time. So I was thinking about this because we were discussing it. So I was thinking about it when I rewatched the episode. Here's my thought. He says, oh, sitting around waiting to get rescued is nice. Okay, usually he doesn't sit around. He actively gets himself into trouble and then needs to be saved. So this time he he actually <laughs> didn't do anything that got himself into trouble. So so it's the sitting around part that we can actually go, okay, maybe maybe fair enough your statement. Because a wolf shifter <laughs> is a kinetic creature. Stray thoughts. I was really sad to see Pietra die at the beginning of the episode. They killed the Docubus shipper guys. They killed her. I was going to say. They are killing me, slowly. That's what they're doing to me. It was representative of Annie's soul in this episode when they yes. killed Pietra. I was also really happy to see Vanessa Matsui again as Cassie the yes. Oracle. I thought she was a fun character in season one. I like to see her back. She wasn't. She was apparently out of her J-pop phase. She now. looks so mature. I know, uh, but she still had sort of her really snarky sense of humor i liked i liked in the beginning when she, when she was making fun of bo and lauren like what's next some soy candles and tegan and sarah <laughs> <laughs> tegan and sarah <laughs> well and i love the trick can kiss my left tit or something like that i think technically it was suck but anyway <laughs> suck my left tit yes that's that's even better <laughs> but and and also i i must say it was i liked the scenes that we got with Lauren in the bedroom. I thought Zoe Palmer actually did a really good job making Lauren talk to herself seem natural and not something unusual that they had to do because the character was by herself. But And she was very funny, I thought, in those scenes. Oh, but, I yeah. mean, we've seen Lauren talk to herself before, haven't we? Yes, as a we geek have. does. When Poe was moaning Lauren's name, score one for the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> she was so hilariously giddy in that, that moment. That was... And she does like a little bounce. She's like really pleased. That was great. <laughs> and for some reason, her comment about them only having Nutella and not peanut butter really made me laugh for some reason. Well, I don't know. Here's why. my thing. Why Lauren should know that Kenzie has a peanut allergy, right? That comment confused me. Oh, that's right. Am I thinking uh, about it too hard? Maybe. <laughs> no, you you might be, but that's that's true. That's a good detail though as to why they might not have peanut butter because That's totally why they wouldn't have peanut butter, but Were they in Kenzie's bedroom? Yes. yes. The whole thing. That's what I thought. So I'm like, oh, why aren't we in Bo's bed? But um, it was nice to see Kenzie's bedroom again. Probably the practical reason is they're using the same set for Kenzie's room as the as for Bo's room. So to save money and having to re- redress the set, they just left it as, as is. Because I think even though they were using Bo's bed as Florin's bed, they were actually in like the downstairs area of the clubhouse. Yeah, that's what I thought because of the door. Yeah. Yeah, because we see where where, you know, Florin tucks Boson behind this little wall when the prince comes mm-hmm. in. That's, That's right. the little walkway to their front door. Of course, uh, Kenzie always has a great one-liners. <laughs> when the Unamens go, what is your last words? You know, she's like, oh god, oh god, oh god. Oh, I stole your last words? Oh, I suck! Carson's <laughs> last words otherwise probably would have been brood. So, you know, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Growl! <laughs> 
Oh, also, thank you to the writers who immediately addressed the big question I think that a lot of viewers had at the end of last episode as to why the Unamens came and took Dyson away, but not Bo, if they both broke the rules by having sex with Lightface slash Darkfay. So thank you for answering that immediately at the beginning of the episode. I personally really appreciated that. Okay, so something I wanted to address by which I mean bring up because it's just a giant question at this point. There's the phrase Cassie says to Bo, you're brave, and something else, something new. So what the hell do we think that means? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. And bringing Cassie back also reminds me of some of the things that Cassie said about Bo when we first saw her back in Dead Lucky. And, you know, in in this episode, there was a lot of talk around destinies and prophecies and it is written and things like that and but right now they're all very vague we have no really concrete ideas about where some of these characters might be going what prophecies are are, have been written about them so i hope we get some more clarity around that soon okay so then there's also what did dyson do to flora to to snap her out of the trance or whatever we want to call it that the the hell she's put her in boson like wolfed out grabbed Florin and squeezed and that's kind of all we saw and then there's like a sound (laughs) and then Florin kind of well I guess Boson like eases Florin down onto the ground but I kind of couldn't tell what had happened there and for some reason for some reason that upsets me that I don't know (laughs) well I had that This is not the first time that this has happened with Dyson. I had the same question in the Kinsey scale, where he is attacking Inari, and then there's just sort of, he makes a face, and there's kind of a noise, and I assume he's supposed to have snapped her neck, but I wasn't entirely sure. And I, my only idea with this scene, and I could be completely wrong, is that Boson took Florin's arms where she had the little Wolverine stabby things. I'm punching the air like an idiot. You can't see it. And <laughs> jabbed the little it's Wolverine awesome. stabby things into Florin's body. And because it seemed like what made the shoes come off of her body was killing her. And so after Boson does whatever, Florin's eyes kind of go back to normal. She comes back to herself. So I feel like Boson injured her in some way. And that's really the only way I can think of since since Boson was not armed or something like that. But like Florin wasn't dead yet. And I think that's maybe part of also or also part of what is confusing me. Right. And for a second, I was like, did he break her arms? Is that what happened? But then she was leaning on her arms. So I'm guessing not because ow. It is a question. I wish it were clearer what had happened. Okay, so then there's the phrase that the Unamens use, mortis in venio in unitate. And I have to, like the nerd I am, my high school Latin teacher always pronounced V's as W. So are are the Fae pronouncing it wrong? Are the, the Unamens? They are. Which is weird, right? Because they might have been alive back when ancient Latin was being spoken. So... Did they forget? <laughs> I know, right? I, I, is it is it Americanized? <laughs> but yes, the the Unamens say mortis invenio in unitate. They say invenio, but I'm gonna correct, correct them. Yeah, yeah, that. So, so also like a nerd, I went and looked this up. Mortis, as one would expect, is death. Invenio means to come upon or find. 
in means in, and unitate is unity. I guess directly translated, that would be death found in unity, which I think it's actually unity found in death, probably, right? Right. So we are all one in death, which makes sense and is a creepy thing to say before you execute people. So it works, I think. Indeed. So we received a couple of voice feedbacks from a few listeners, from Kevin Batchelder and then from Sally. So here those are. Thank you for sending those in. Hey, everyone. It's Kevin Batchelder. Just wanted to phone in some uh, general feedback about the last several podcasts. Uh, been a lot of fun. Really enjoying them now that we're getting deep into uh, season four. Uh, you ladies all bring something just a little bit different to the podcast, which is great. And enjoy hearing your thoughts from where you're coming from. You know, been great seeing Annie talking up uh, some of the additional uh, Lauren uh, screen time that she's had at least the last few episodes. So we know we have that coming in. And then Chris being on the road and such, you know, a little bit like the Where's Waldo? Where's she going to call in from next? And what device is she going to be using? So it's been a lot of fun. Also have to give you some major props for that Emily Andros interview. Uh, I mean, I've listened to and even been involved in, in many uh, podcasts with showrunners, but that's probably the most fun one I've ever listened to. Uh, you asked a lot of great fan point of view questions, and she was just so casual and comfortable. It was great to hear that one. Really enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, and also the idea of the fan wank. You could make that a weekly segment maybe every week or something. I think that could be a lot of fun. I know at the time of this recording, I think we're down to about 240-some-odd days left until DragonCon 2014. So, uh, you know, probably just after the new year, we'll start seriously looking ahead at some possible, uh, you know, Lost Girl fan events and such. So... Uh, look forward to helping out and see if we can get some of those organized. And who knows, maybe even uh, that uh, Lost Girl uh, you know, slumber party idea we've thrown around on Twitter actually will come to pass. So thanks again for all your efforts. Really enjoy listening, folks. You take care. Hi, Stephanie, Annie, and Chris. This is Sally. I really enjoyed your interview with Emily Andrus, and thank you for using my question. It was really interesting to hear Emily's answer, which was that she hadn't necessarily meant a double meaning with the phrase, it's time, for, you know, it's time to have a relationship like this on TV. I think in my mind, I had built that up into almost near prophetic importance, and I thought of it like a statement from the Oracle at Delphi, it's time. And so to hear Emily saying, you know, what a lovely interpretation, but that isn't something that she had in the forefront of her mind while she was writing it was uh, fascinating. And it made me kind of think about what I bring to my experience of watching this show. And, uh, you know, obviously everybody brings their own stuff to TV and books and art. And what we see reflected back at us is in some ways a reflection of our own expectations but anyway, it was a really fun podcast. I love them all. I'm glad that you guys did this. And props to Emily for joining you for an hour. Go, Emily. I love you, Emily. Bye. Hi. Um, I'm a really big fan of the show. The first one and my favorite one I've listened to was when you guys interviewed Emily. I was fangirling with you guys. And um, I'm a huge fan of Zoe Palmer and Lauren. I know you guys are too. So thank you so much, Annie, for your docubusters because those are hilarious. And I fangirl with you every single time. And every single podcast I've listened to, I've always laughed out loud. So thank you so much. 
That last message was from Jasmine. So thank you so much, all three of you, for your kind words and your compliments. Again, we so much enjoyed interviewing Emily Andrus, and we're very glad that people are enjoying it so much. If you have not listened to that interview, go ahead and do it. Emily is very funny. It's really worth listening to. And that you can find that interview at drinksatthedoll.com slash 30. So if you would like to send in some feedback, we would love to get it. You can send it to us in a variety of ways. You can send us an email to feedback at drinksatthedoll.com. You can also go and leave a comment on the show notes over at drinksatthedoll.com slash 33. Or you can call and leave a voicemail on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you all have a lovely holiday season if you celebrate it. My name is Stephanie. And I'm still dramatically moaning, but I'm Annie. And I'm slightly tipsy. And my name is Chris. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Cheers. Cheers.